Welcome to the Working Tools Podcast, a casual conversation about Freemasonry. Ladies and gentlemen, brethren all, welcome to the Working Tools Podcast, a casual conversation around Freemasonry. First, it's important to note that our thoughts and opinions are our own and do not reflect those of our Grand Lodge or respective craft or concordant bodies. Please connect with us and ask questions via our website at theworkingtoolspodcast.com. Welcome to the Working Tools Podcast, a casual conversation about Freemasonry. On today's episode, we're going to have a discussion about the myths of Freemasonry. And uh, today's panel, uh, we have Right Worshipable Brother Trevor McEwen from the Grand Lodge of British Columbia in the Yukon. And we also have Very Worshipable Brother Matt Apple from the Grand Lodge of Washington. And I am Steve Chung, just the lowly past master here in Prince Charles Lodge in Kelowna, BC. And uh, uh, to start this conversation, I think we should just hand that right over to Brother McEwen, who is uh, very well versed in this topic. Uh, Well, Stephen, I can tell you a fair amount about our historical myths. And this is something that I've been reading about, studying about, researching for a lot of years. And there were two kinds of myths about Freemasonry. Those that are told about us by others and those we tell about ourselves. And we've been making up stories about ourselves from day one. (laughs) So the oldest myth goes right back to Dr. Anderson and the Book of Constitutions in what, 1717, in which he gave us a gloss of our history, taking it all the way back in a fantastic chronology to Adam uh, and just about anyone of any historical importance in between those two times. So he had a certain amount of foundation for this uh, from the old charges, but nevertheless, he was spinning pretty fast himself. And in fact, to this day, there is some controversy in whether or not his history about the actual founding in 1717 is accurate. And our uh, Quarter Coronati Lodge uh, in London continues to discuss this and has had a number of uh, videos made about it. It was part of their 300th uh, anniversary celebration, celebrations, commemorations, and um, it continues to be a problem. So that's our first myth. And The idea uh, that we have a a lineal descent all the way back to the building of King Solomon's Temple has been a myth that was very popular in the 19th century and perhaps in some circles continues to be. So, and to English Freemasons, the connection with King uh, Athelstan, who many people today don't even recognize the name, but in England, he's, he's still more of a, a player, if you will. So some years ago, uh, who was it? John Robinson wrote a book called Born in Blood. And he was one of the first to popularize this current notion of a lineal connection to Kings, to, uh, to the Knights Templar. So that has been thoroughly debunked. Uh, 
we we could know that this came from uh, the early days of French Freemasonry and uh, the Chevalier Ramsey and a, an oration he gave in in France and I'm not sure exactly when the 1730s and that story continues to raise its head and there are still many brethren especially those connected with the Knights Templar degree of Freemasonry who like to think that there's some lineal connection with this group of crusaders so <clears throat> that's another myth then then we have more recently uh Christopher Knight and Robert Lomas who brought us the Hiram Key some years ago and their grasp of history is a little shaky as well. Uh, and we have Michael Bajan, who gave us Holy Blood and Holy Grail. And all of these take us back to this myth of the Templars. So it, these are myths that are still very much out there, even though you have uh, Robert Cooper, current curator of the uh, museum at the Grand Lodge of Scotland. He has written an a excellent book some years ago uh, I'm not sure, almost 20 years ago now, in which he thoroughly debunks all of this, yet the story continues to be out there. Um, here's another myth, the blue forget-me-not. Now, the story still told in many Masonic circles is that this blue forget-me-not was worn by Freemasons in Germany during the war and in German uh, POW camps. This is entirely a myth. Uh, it got its start after the war when the newly elected Grand Master of the newly revived Grand Lodge, one of the Grand Lodges uh, in Germany, uh, told this, a story about how every year they would have their annual communication and every year they would strike a little lapel button, a pin. And one year back in uh, the 1920s, I'm not sure, 1926 perhaps, they, uh, they used the blue forget-me-not as the pin to celebrate that year. Roll forward another almost a decade, mid-1930s, 1934, the Nazis were fundraising on the streets for um, raising money for a rearmament. And every month they would issue a new pin and they'd send out people to sell them on the streets to shake down citizens on the street. You buy this pin and you won't be harassed for money for the rest of the month. Well, one year, as I say, in 1934, the pin they chose happened to come from the same manufacturer that made the, the original blue forget-me-not and they used that for that one month. This has nothing to do with POWs. This has nothing to do with Masons wearing it during the, the Nazi era. But he tells this story when he made the tour of, of North America after the war in the uh, early 1950s, I guess. And the story got changed into this idea that Freemasons had used this to identify themselves during the war. So this is entirely a myth. It's still a great story in its truthful areas, historical part, but it's it's still uh, a myth. It sounds like so, a pretty good story, though. Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, now, here's another myth, and this is one that cuts a little deeper. 
because we encourage this myth, and we'll talk about it constantly, that we belong to some universal monolithic secular fraternity that, that will accept any man of the full age of 21 uh, as long as he believes in a supreme being. But that's a myth because throughout our history, and even to this day in many parts uh, of the world, Freemasonry is very much restricted. At uh, one time in Northern Europe, if you were a member of the Swedish Rite, you had to be a not just a member, but an active uh, participant in the Lutheran Church in, in that jurisdiction. Uh, to this day, you have to be a professed Trinitarian Christian, although there are many who skirt around that. It, uh, it's not really enforced, but it's still in their constitution. If you travel into the southern states, uh, or in many, in many jurisdictions, uh, if you're not a Trinitarian Christian, and quite frankly, if you're not white, uh, you're not going to be getting into a lodge. So we are very much the products of our time and place, and we have to recognize that we have our ideals, but those are not necessarily our practices. Um, I feel obligated to say here that nowadays, that's not the case, at least here in Washington, and I'm assuming in British Columbia and the Yukon, that uh, that uh, non-white and non-Christian people are more than welcome. So well, and have been for many years. Um, I we don't keep records like this, so I have no idea when the first Asian, when the first black was initiated into our lodge. I know when I joined my lodge 40 years ago, there were two very active uh, Chinese, one from Hong Kong and one from mainland China. Um, elderly, older men who I would have to check, but had probably belonged since the 60s. So at least since the middle of the 20th century, not that that's any, gives us any bragging rights, but yes, we are products of our time and place and our time and place has shifted. So we have to recognize these changes. And th th that shift is interesting. That shift is interesting because there was something I, I ended up having a, 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 on this topic here, the... Uh, a conversation with a brother uh, recently, and um, it's not as back in the day. The saying was, "You had to believe in God to become a Freemason," and now it's shifted to, "You have to believe in a supreme being, or in the great architect of the universe, or to make it broader, so that we can welcome more." It seems by changing the verbiage, right, uh, from saying God to another term. There's, uh, exactly, and in a similar vein, uh, the expression still in most of our rituals uh, is uh, the volume of the sacred law. But more and more I'm hearing people say the volume of sacred law, not the sacred law. Now, our constitution doesn't mention what the volume of sacred law is supposed to be on the altar, except there's a mention made in the old charges, which we, in our jurisdiction, include in our constitution. And that has allowed some lodges where the, some brethren would like to only have one book. So if they're uh, initiating a, a, a Muslim, uh, they would only have uh, the Quran. If they were initiating a Christian, they'd only have the Bible and so forth. Uh, but the Constitution insists that there has to be a Bible 
You can put other books there for them to take their obligation on, but the Bible has to be there. And there is some in this jurisdiction. I'm not sure if I'm, I'm letting the cat out of the bag, but I understand that there are some who are proposing a resolution to change that so that mm -hmm. it, uh, the Bible is as welcome as any book, but it is not a requirement that it has to be there. That's and interesting. That will, be, that will be a bit of a change for <clears throat> some of our senior members. Now, why would someone want to do that? Um, well, this is getting away from our, our topic, but it has to do with uh, there are only three lesser lights. There are only uh, there are only th uh, there are only three great lights, not a dozen of them. So if if you you only have the volume of sacred law, the square, and the compasses on the altar, you don't have two, three, four, five, seventeen of them. Yeah, regardless of the members there. So, and this is, this is possible. This happens in some other jurisdictions, not in North America, I don't imagine, where the master will pick the book for the year, his own faith perhaps, or, or they will swap it out for the candidate when they're, uh, but there'll only be one book there. There won't be the Lodge Bible and the candidate's book of whatever. There will only be one. Interesting. Is the, I think the logical argument. Uh, I suspect it won't go anywhere. I suspect it's a little bit of, of political correctness, perhaps. Uh, but as I say, not really our topic today. Here's another one. On your Master Mason certificate, there will have the date that you were raised, uh, Anno Domini, or, or Common Era, as, as historians now refer to it, um, and A.L., and many still believe that that refers to in the year of light, Anno Lucas. And it's not. It is um, uh, Anno Latimorum, in the year of masonry. And this is very clear if you go back to our earliest documents in the late 1600s, the old charges, and in Anderson's Constitution, where in several places, the, the phrase in the year of masonry or in the year of Freemasonry and the Latin expression anno latorum or uh, latomus. I think there's, there's other similar sounding words. My Latin is pretty shaky. Um, and this is not a dangerous myth, except that by calling it in the year of light, we tie it in with another myth that the Archbishop Usher back in the 1500s declared that the world was created in 4004 uh, on October 13th, Friday at sundown. Uh, and he didn't actually say that. That's a conflation of several historians of the period who obviously had a real shaky grasp of history. But it's, so it's, it's not a dangerous uh, myth on our part to believe that, but it's just wrong. Um, and, and uh, obviously of more interest to, to the academics among us than, than those of than the rest of us. Um, so, those, so there's a, a small handful of some of the, the, the bigger myths that I've come across that our members continue to believe in, uh, myths about our history. There, there are of course many other uh, myths that we're going to talk about later here. I, I understand, uh, but I think that pretty much sums those up. Uh, you, have either of you come across any other uh, stories about our history that uh, that you've been unsure of? 
<laughs> I tend to believe everything everybody tells me until somebody proves <laughs> a, a, a good question involved, right? You know, um, maybe that's just because, you know, I'm gullible or, or maybe that's just because I, I give everybody the benefit of the doubt. Um, but <clears throat> I do, you know, my, my, my spidey senses do pick up when it starts to sound a little off, right? And then once it creates a question, well, you know, then that's it. I can't just wholeheartedly believe that anymore. Now, now these are all myths we've told about ourselves. Uh, then there were the myths told by others. Uh, a myth that we can address in, in our next section as well. Uh, but many non-Masons believe that they have to wait to be asked to join. Right. Uh, and that is, that is a dangerous myth, and that's one that we as Masons have to dispel. Um, but there are other ones. Here's another more or less historical one, and a lot of people believe, uh, and this is a very negative one, Jack the Ripper was a Freemason, or there's some sort of tie-in with Freemasonry. And there have been... I would imagine since the 1960s, six, seven, eight movies, and who knows how many television specials specifically about that, none of them really disproving it because, of course, that doesn't get the ratings. But it's interesting that it wasn't until the early 60s that anyone even suggested that there was a Masonic connection. So at the time, and for generations after, there was never any idea of that. And anyone, any ripperologist out there will tell you uh, that there's nothing on the ground. There's nothing historically to connect it to Freemasonry. Uh, and in fact, most of the so-called historical facts that would make the connection are false to start with. Uh, <laughs> things, things like um, uh, the artist Sickard Studio, uh, actually had been torn down two years before the events actually took place. So he, he couldn't have been involved. Things like that. Uh, so, so, that's, uh, so that's definitely a myth and easily disproved. Of course, pop culture doesn't need proof to, to carry on. Um, <laughs> ones that are more now just historical because not too many people pay attention to them. Anti-Masons will glom onto any, of course, uh, any minute factoid they can and spin it all out of control. Robert Kennedy, sorry, his brother, John F. Kennedy, once gave a speech in which he condemned secret societies. And anti-Masons love to quote that. Except in context, if you read his speech, he wasn't condemning Freemasonry, he was condemning the CIA. <laughs> <laughs> he was he was again because he saw his whole security infrastructure uh, as not really following his orders, mm. uh, and historically we have now discovered that he had reason. You know, even paranoids have have enemies, uh, and there were issues there. But anti Masons will still quote Kennedy as condemning Freemasonry when in fact he did not. Um, we were talking about the blue forget-me-not earlier. There's another myth out there that Freemasons started the Nazi party. That's so outlandish that, you know, you just kind of, Masons will just laugh when they hear that. There is the faintest historical connection. The Nazi party, before it was the Nazi party, was part of a German movement, 
a peaceful German movement for uh, getting into the outdoors, healthy living, returning to the, you know, hiking and all of that sort of thing. And also a mystical streak uh, of connecting them with certain Rosicrucian, Hermetic, uh, Eastern idea, Persian ideas. It's quite, it was quite the mixed bag. But one of the founders of the, what was it called? The uh, Thessal, Thule Gesselschaft. Pardon my South Vancouver accent there. Um, one of the, the founders of that was also a member of an irregular Masonic lodge in Turkey. I mean, a little tiny connection and certainly not proof that Freemasonry had anything to do with the Nazi party, but that's what anti-Masons will spin. So that story, and my here's an interesting point, is psychologists will tell us that refuting lies only deeply ingrains those lies because people will, when they hear the lie another time, will say, oh, I heard something about that. Even if they heard the debunking of it, they just remember they heard something about it. When they hear it again, they're more apt to believe it the second time. So I'm just feeding into the mythology, unfortunately. And there's no you know, I wonder if there was a recent, recent history um, example of any of that. No, no, that, that couldn't be. Um, the, uh, uh, let's not go there. <laughs> the uh, actually, so you're talking about myths that we tell ourselves. I think one of the ones that that comes to my mind is the uh, that the ritual as we have it now is the ritual that it has always been, and it has you know if there have been any changes whatsoever, there have been minor changes around the margins, and and they were bad. And you know, all you have to do is travel outside of your Grand Lodge, and you know, if, if I if I go to Oregon or Idaho or Florida or British Columbia, you know, the ritual's completely different. And there, but there are people who will say, you know, oh, you can't change that. It's you know, ah, you're changing masonry, and there's a million. And, and there's a there's a good psychological reason for that. We are always in our life. I mean, this is this goes back to our childhood, children. Young, young children are the most conservative people. You have to read that, that bedtime story in exactly the same words every time. You know, they, they like things predictable. It's not until they get a little older that, that they become <laughs> the unpredictable in themselves. But when they're young, you know, psychologically, they want that consistency. And we all retain that in our adulthood in certain aspects of our life. Don't it's rearrange my knife drawer. <laughs> you know, and don't rearrange my ritual. I've memorized it now. It's in my brain. I don't want it to change. So we can sympathize with the reasons for this, but recognize very much so that, that it is a myth. You know, the, the, uh, uh, I was telling another uh, uh, brother that we were going to be talking about the myths uh, on a, one of our upcoming episodes. And he says, you know, Something about the myths of, of uh, surrounding Freemasonry, you know, he says, uh, of course, because they're myths, majority of them are debunked, but true or false, they do get us a lot of press. And he, he says, and in my world, there's no such thing as bad press, right? And so, you know, it, in his opinion, even the negative things that people try to spin on to the myths of around Freemasonry um, just creates more mystique. And for somebody to delve into it and look into it 
and which creates more people looking at Freemasonry. And so he figures they're all good. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a bit of a two-edged sword. Um, I recognize that. I understand the mystique of Freemasonry, but I think there's enough mystery to Freemasonry without us having to create more. Um, that was part of the discussion several years ago when John Brown, was it John Brown wrote um, The Lost Word or something like that? Uh, and this, I, I know for a fact that Scottish Rite, Southern Jurisdiction, embraced this book. Uh, that some jurisdictions were, were giving it to potential candidates. And I wrote a scathing review uh, of the book at the time because, um, yes, it goes on and on about Freemasonry and talks about the good things about Freemasonry, but the underlying story arc was of a secret cabal of high-ranking Freemasons who were prepared to kill to keep secret of their initiation. I mean, that was kind of hidden in the, in the story arc, but it was not a positive spin on Freemasonry. <laughs> Yet, once the book was published, uh, I know several jurisdictions. Um, S. Brent Morris in Washington, D.C. tells me that the, um, the number of people coming for tours of the House of the, the Temple in, in Washington, D.C., the Scottish Rite, building uh ballooned the they were they were they were selling out for their tours of the building yet how that actually translated into uh petitions for initiation uh no one's followed followed that so i have no i have absolutely no idea i don't know. all right well on that note uh, i think you'll thank everybody for viewing the first episode of this topic and join us for our next episode when we conclude this topic and i'd like to thank uh, brother apple and brother McEwen for making the time to be here this morning and and uh, do these recordings and um, uh, we will see you on the next episode